My name is Harrison, and I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. Um, please come find me after the service. Uh, we've been going through the book of Acts as a church and talking about cultivating shalom as our theme for, for church this year. And shalom is life as it was meant to be in the beginning. It's life um, to the fullest, life without sin, life uh, as it will be in heaven, life that is actually broken into our reality through Jesus. And we have an opportunity of cultivating that life now uh, in our world. Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven. He says it's in our midst. And so in Acts, we're looking particularly at how the early church worked to cultivate shalom in their midst, especially against barriers from both outside the church and from within the church. And one barrier to the spread of this kingdom, which we're going to look at today, is this question. Uh, to what extent is Jesus' new movement strictly Jewish? It's actually a question that many still, still wonder today. To what extent is Christianity, this uh, movement of Jesus that we consider ourselves part of, to what extent is that Jewish? Remember that Jesus was Jewish. He viewed himself as the Messiah, which is a Jewish concept written about in the Jewish uh, scriptures, which was uh, Messiah was a savior and restorer of mainly, in part, the Jewish people. Jesus' ministry was largely to Jews, and he and his followers didn't see themselves as starting a separate religion, but rather fulfilling everything the Jewish scriptures were pointing to. They still considered themselves Jewish. And somehow we got from there a movement of Jews to here to Hope Chapel today. Now, who is Jewish in this room? To, to Jews, those who are not Jewish are considered Gentiles. So how did we Gentiles uh, become part of this seemingly Jewish thing? And some might wonder, uh, maybe a comparative religion professor at a, at a college, are modern Christians actually appropriating Hebrew culture for themselves? Are we using their text and their God and co-opting him for our own benefit? Is that what Christianity is? So this morning I want to ask, to what extent is Christianity Jewish? And how do we get from the small Jewish movement here to Hope Chapel? That's what our text is about today, and, and I think it's one of the most important texts in Acts partly because it's Kevin Hanner's favorite text I learned this morning, so that's awesome. Uh, but you know it's important because it takes up a lot of space. Uh, it's 66 verses out of Acts, and it actually repeats itself a lot. Um, we skipped a lot of the repetition in our reading of, this, of it this morning, um, and actually the whole uh, first half of chapter 11 is just a repetition of the story, Peter kind of relating these things. And Luke, the author, is clearly trying to emphasize this story to say it's true, believe it, uh, let me say it again, uh, it is true, it happened. Um, and he does this because the story is actually the hinge that opens up God's true purpose for this movement in the eyes of the early Jews. It opens up that the Holy Spirit is not just for the Jews, but he's actually for the entire world. And Jesus is not just for the Jews, but he's for you and he's for me. And so today, Gentiles, this is our origin story. Uh, Cornelius is our guy, uh, the first one of us to get in. Uh, so our question is, to what extent is Christianity Jewish? We're going to look at three answers this morning from our text. Uh, one is that the Gentiles are not as far from the Jewish God as you might have thought. Second, the Jews are not as always in line with the Jewish God as you might have thought. And then three, the Jewish God, being the true God, has always been the God of all people. So the Gentiles, Gentiles are not as far from the Jewish God as you might have thought. The Jews are not as always in line with the Jewish God as you might have thought. And the Jewish God, being the true God, has always been the God of all people. So let's pray before we dive in. Father, um, myself and many of us 
come and take for granted every day that we have a share with you. Um, Lord, I ask you this morning that you would open our eyes to the beauty of us getting to truly belong to you. The beauty that we experienced for the first time when we did that we might have forgotten about. Uh, Lord, we were all outsiders and you brought us in. I uh, pray that you would give us gratitude and joy and wonder about that this morning. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at is the Gentiles are not as far from the Jewish God as one might have thought. Look with me in verse 1 in your, um, in your worship guide or your Bible. At Caesarea, there was, there was a man named Cornelius. Uh, so Caesarea is, is in the middle of uh, Judea, and the Romans had built their capital. Uh, it's, a, it's a newer place. It's the center of government for their administration called Caesarea. Um, and so this is uh, Gentile central. Um, it's, it's the place where Gentiles would be hanging out. And Cornelius is a very Roman, Gentile-sounding kind of name. Uh, and then it continues, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A centurion is a Roman army commander, uh, so he would be over 100 Roman soldiers, and they were all divided into cohorts based on where you were recruited. Uh, so these guys were recruited in Italy. Um, and basically, this is, again, a lot of Gentile names, Gentile descriptions, saying Cornelius is basically a Gentile of Gentiles, a very Gentile kind of guy. Uh, and if you're a Jew, you might expect this description to continue. Uh, Cornelius, centurion, uh, okay, pagan worshiper, unclean, uh, sinner in every way, hater of Yahweh. That's what you're expecting to hear. But then look what Luke says in verse 2. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. This is an incredible description uh, because it shows an outward and inward devotion to God in all the hardest places. Outward devotion, giving his money away generously to the poor. Who in here is really good at giving away all your money generously to the poor? And inward devotion, continual personal prayer. Who in here is always in personal prayer? So this is a real exemplary Gentile believer and it's not just him, but it's his whole household. And then later in verse 22, his servants describe Cornelius this way. Cornelius is centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. This guy must have had quite a reputation for his servants to walk around saying things like that to people about him. And then look at, if you think, if you're wondering, okay, maybe this is what other people think. Look at what God thinks uh, in verse 3 here. At about the ninth hour of the day, this was an hour of prayer, so Cornelius is likely in prayer at this time. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and said, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This is also amazing language. Here's what it means is that a Jewish sacrifice, for a Jewish sacrifice in the Old Testament, um, Parts of the animal were, were cooked to be eaten by the priests. And other parts of the animal were reserved to be totally burned up, given solely to God. And, and uh, the Old Testament would say that, that their, that fire of that part being burned up would, would ascend as a pleasing aroma to God. And God would smell it and he would remember that person. And what that was called was the memorial or the remembrance offering. Um, the totally devoted to God part, and that's the word that's used here of Cornelius's prayers and of his alms. 
uh, is that God is considering them his memorial, his remembrance offering, and something offered to God alone. And God is smelling that pleasing aroma coming from a Gentile. And God is accepting it. So the angel commands Cornelius to send people to get Peter, setting up this whole encounter. Why? Because the Holy Spirit remembers and is seeking this Gentile. Largely, according to the passage, because this exemplary Gentile has sought the Holy Spirit with his life. Remember Jesus' words from the gospel, Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. This man sought and he was found by God. And God wants this Gentile to belong to him. And this means for the Jews in the story is that the Gentiles are not as far from the Jewish God as we might have thought. This is not a new idea in Acts that a Gentile or an outsider would have an exemplary kind of faith and devotion. Um, the Gospels are actually full of this too. The author uh, Luke of Acts also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he's intentionally mirroring a story in his Gospel with this story. Uh, and the story in his gospel is a, of a similar centurion, Luke 7, who has a beloved servant who's so sick that the servant's about to die, and so the centurion sends for Jesus. And the Jews who hear about it say of this centurion to Jesus, they say, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So this is another centurion with a strong reputation among the Jews, someone who stands out. And, uh, and Jesus agrees uh, to, to heal this person, but as he heads that direction, he receives a messenger from the centurion who says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I have authority kind of like you. I command a lot of soldiers. I can tell them to go and come as I please. So just send, just say that my servant will be healed, and he'll, he will be. There's no need for you to come. And the text says Jesus marveled at this faith, and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And so this unnamed centurion Gentile in Luke 7 has, according to Jesus, more faith than anybody in Israel has. And so this centurion becomes an example of faith to Jesus' disciples, someone to aspire to be like. And Cornelius is operating the same way. He's an example and clearly the Gentiles are not as far from the Jewish God as they might have thought. And this depiction of Gentiles is affirming for us Gentiles today because it means that you can really actually have access to the Jewish God even as a Gentile. The Hebrew God of the Old Testament that you read about, the Jewish Jesus of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit in Acts, they actually do cross over from the Jewish people to our people. From this culture that we read about in the Bible into our culture. From that time into our time. And they are with us in this room right now, Gentiles. You are not as far from the God of the Bible as you might have thought. Even those of you who don't consider yourself in here in relationship with that God. You may feel far from him, but he is not actually far from you. I knew a guy, Mark, from France uh, in St. Louis when I worked at a restaurant there. He was a, a host at the restaurant. And Mark, along with many of the French people, did not like Christianity one bit. Uh, and uh, understandably, uh, did not like the effect that the Catholic and Protestant churches had had on their culture in France um, historically. And Mark told me that he would, uh, even still, he would go at night and he would sit by himself in a cathedral. Uh, it was actually a cathedral that he 
vehemently disagreed with. A cathedral that he knew got a lot of people killed building it. Uh, the church had terrible working conditions. People died. He would still go at night and sit by himself in this cathedral. And he would say that there he felt a sense of something or someone bigger than him, something outside of time, something that he needed deeply. And as he would sit in the dark, he said he would talk to this presence that was there. He didn't call it God, but I think a little memorial offering was ascending up in those moments, and Mark was not as far from the God of the Bible as he would have thought. I also knew a guy, Esat, from Saudi Arabia when I was in St. Louis, who showed up in our church uh, one week, and he had grown up Muslim but was reconsidering his faith and wanted to find out the truth about the real God, and he thought that visiting every religion in a service of, of each religion was, was the way that he was going to do that. And so we were the representatives of Christianity for him, which is a big, uh, a big task, and Presbyterian specifically. Um, him and I had a, a lot of meetings after he visited. And I think his desperate searching was a little memorial offering also going up to God as he was visiting all these places. At one point he said to me, I don't know what the truth is, but I feel God when we're talking together, and it feels like we're brothers before the same God. And that was one of many evidences that Esau was not as far from God as he might have thought. And so one, the Gentiles and, and religious outsiders to us today are not as far from the Jewish God as one might have thought. And this shouldn't have been surprising to the Jews, but it was. A big thing in, in the Old Testament was that after sin entered the world, God decided to choose Abraham and Abraham's descendants, uh, the Jewish people, to be his ambassadors to the world. They were to get to know God and his ways, and then to communicate those winsomely to the Gentiles around them. And this was God's plan of redemption, that they were to be his agent of redemption for the world. And God calls them a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations. They were blessed to be a blessing. And now one thing we saw, though, throughout the Old Testament was the, sec the second point. The Jews are not as always in line with the Jewish God as one might have thought. Now when I say Jews, I'm in no way trying to make a blanket statement about all Jewish people but rather to say a teaching in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the nominal people of God, those who call themselves the people of God, which for a lot of the Bible is uh, Israel, the Jewish people, um, often have many that are out of step with God in big ways. And that includes the Jews of the Old Testament, New Testament, and it also includes the church now. Is that the nominal people of God are not as always in line with God as you might have thought. And in our passage, the, the Jewish leadership at the time of Acts is not as in line with the Jewish God as one might have thought. And let me show you, and look, look with me in verse 9 of our passage. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, who's a, a Jewish follower of Jesus, went up on the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open up and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. So the idea is that he's on the housetop. Housetops often would have coverings, kind of like a sheet that provided shade for people that are sitting up there. And the idea is he's falling asleep hungry, and he has this dream of that sheet coming down, and there's a bunch of food on it. Uh, verse 12, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter here is referring to Israel's purity laws given to them by God in the Pentateuch. And I want to take a minute and explain what a purity law is. 
Uh, Many ancient societies had purity laws before Israel ever did. Uh, A purity law was a cultural concept, kind of like the English language is a cultural concept to us. Why do we use words the way we do? I don't know. It's just something that we do. Um, Purity laws would state that certain foods, certain items, certain places were more pure or impure, more holy or unholy, more clean or unclean. They were not instituted strictly for medical safety, as some people assume, or physical cleanliness, or even some sort of superstition. They were just part of many ancient cultures. They would look at us and think we're weird, that we don't do that. In the, in the Bible, God constantly, one thing we see about God is he communicates with his people in a language that they know of and can understand. Think about Jesus, second member of the Trinity, uh, talking to people in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, using the language that they understand, uh, literally. And then also think about Jesus, an eternal member of the Godhead, using mostly agricultural images to explain things to people. Why is he doing that? It's because he's in an agricultural society. That's how people think. Uh, That's how he's communicating with them. And now for Old Testament Israel, God uses their language of purity laws to speak to them, to teach them about his holiness and his demands for his people to be holy. For instance, God dwells in the temple, and so everything around him must be very, very clean and pure, the highest level, signifying his holiness to them. And likewise, Israel, who's going to be close to God relationally, must live as pure and clean and holy before God. They must live very differently than those around them from their devout worship, their moral character, even something as routine and small as what they ate. Relationship with God affected their entire lives. So God declared to his, uh, in his law certain foods were clean and unclean to teach them about himself. And they were, in turn, also to, to, to teach uh, all this to the Gentiles, to teach them about God's holiness. That's the, the idea of a purity law. So getting back to our passage, God shows Peter a bunch of unclean foods and says, eat them. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And a voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And so God seems like he's changing the rules here, uh, taking away the dietary purity laws. And this is actually not the case for this passage. Other passages address that, but Peter doesn't interpret this as a dietary change. Uh, We're going to see how he interprets it in verse 28, but before we read that, I just want to follow the story to get there real quick of what happened. So, So Peter wakes up, the guys from Cornelius arrive, Holy Spirit uh, directly tells Peter, go with these guys. Peter goes with them, shows up at Cornelius' house. Cornelius has gathered a bunch of relatives and close friends because this is a monumental moment for him. And then when Peter arrives, he kneels before Peter when Peter comes in. And Peter says, I'm just a guy like you. Don't kneel before me. And I just want to say, I love Cornelius, right? Like, he's amazing. He's gathered all these people there. He's, he's kneeling to the floor. All this is showing you, it's just like, this is a very humble kind of guy, And then verse 28, Peter gives us his interpretation of the dream. And it's implied that this is what we're to learn from it. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so Peter interprets this dietary command, rise Peter, kill and eat. Don't call something... uh, Clean that, I, that I call, unclean that I call clean. He interprets that as a metaphor for a person, namely the Gentiles. For him, God is saying, do not call Gentiles unclean that I have called clean. And you might be wondering, 
why was it unlawful for Jews to associate with or visit Gentiles if the Jews were supposed to lead the Gentiles to God? How could they do that if associating with the Gentiles was against the rules? Why would God make a rule like that? And the answer is, he didn't. Remember, Jesus got angry at the Jewish leaders of his day because he says, you are teaching as doctrines of God the commandments of men. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting, making void the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Essentially, he told them, you guys are making up new rules. And those rules actually cause people to have to break the commandments of God to uphold your new rules. And so this forbidding the association with Gentiles because they're unclean was one of the many places Jewish leadership were not as in line with the Jewish God as you might have thought. Jesus said they neglected the weightier matters of the law to uphold the lighter matters. And this is one of those places, neglecting talking to Gentiles in order to make sure they never risk getting unclean somehow. And underneath all that was often the pride of Jewish nationalism, a partiality based on ethnicity. I am better than you because of who my parents and my grandparents are. So I look down on you Gentiles as permanently unclean and unredeemable people. And the Holy Spirit, who loves Gentiles, intervenes to teach Peter, do not call this person unclean that I have called clean. That's the meaning of the dream. And in other words, stop making up commandments that keep them from me. Proclaim your role as ambassador to these people. And Peter recognizes that, immediately changes course, and goes and breaks the rules and associates with the Gentile. And this intervention by God on behalf of the Gentiles is uh, not uncommon in the Bible. Similar, especially to the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with Jonah. Um, God calls Jonah to go to a Gentile city, Nineveh, and to prophesy to them in hopes that they will repent and turn to God. Jonah doesn't want to. He hates Nineveh, uh, doesn't, want to go, doesn't want them to repent because they're enemies of Israel. He tries to go the other way. Uh, as you know, he's swallowed by a big fish, spit right back out, back towards Nineveh. Uh, and he eventually goes and he preaches the worst sermon ever. Uh, 40 days and you guys are going to be destroyed. That's the sermon. 40 days, that's what he got, and then you're all done. And guess what? At that worst sermon, they actually repent. Uh, they aren't as far, far from the Jewish God as you might have thought. Um, and yet, uh, Jonah isn't as in line with the Jewish God as you might have thought. He still, after they repent, goes and sits on a hill to watch Nineveh and wait for them to be destroyed. He still wants to see it. And God does something interesting to Jonah. He, um, as Jonah sits on that hill, uh, God makes the sun hot. And then he brings up a plant, covers Jonah to give him shade. And then God kills the plant, and it makes Jonah very angry. And Jonah says, angry enough to die. And God says, you pitied the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God is saying, Jonah, you did not make that plant. I designed and created every one of these people. I fashioned them with my hands. I caused them to grow. I provided for them as kids. I've sustained them. I know everything about them. There are 120,000 of them in the city, and they don't know their right hand from their left spiritually. Should I not pity them? 
and they're rulers of creation. Should I not pity the creation that's under them, all the cattle that they're supposed to care for? This is God's posture towards Gentiles like us. Do not call this person unclean that I call clean. Do not assume this person's far from me who is sending up memorials in their lives to me. This means for those of you in here who don't know God, he is not sitting on a hill waiting for your destruction. If any other Christians have treated you like Jonah treated Nineveh, viewing you as irredeemable, wishing for your destruction, I'm so sorry. And that is not the God that we serve. He cares for you so much. He made you. He raised you. He has great compassion for you. And for the Christians in here, it's a challenge to us. Do you have the same compassion God has for your neighbors? Spiritually, they may not know their right hand from their left. They might be grasping for God in the dark. Do you know that you have a light to share with them? And that God's commanded you to do that. So two, the Jews are not as in line with the Jewish God as one might have thought. And the Holy Spirit intervenes, thankfully, for us Gentiles. And so to what extent is Christianity Jewish? The Gentiles are not as far from the Jewish God as you might have thought. The Jews are not as always in line with the Jewish God as you might have thought. And then third, the Jewish God, being the true God, has always been the God of all people. Look with me in verse 34. Uh, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now this Greek word literally means God is not an acceptor of your face. Uh, we say he's not a respecter of persons, meaning God is not biased based on whether you look ethnically Jewish, ethnically Gentile, racially white, racially black, good-looking, bad-looking, strong, weak, wealthy, homeless, a pastor, a DoorDash driver, he does not accept your face. He does not accept your outward appearance. Verse 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Meaning God looks past your face and only at your heart. Do not be fooled by this world. Man certainly looks at your outer, outward appearance. But God looks only at your heart. And what Peter is saying here is that it is those who are outwardly and inwardly faithful like Cornelius that are acceptable to God. Those who fear him and do what is right are acceptable no matter how they look in their face. Peter's conclusion is that means God is not best described as the God of ethnically Jewish people, but he's best described as the Lord of all. And after this, Peter shares a story of Jesus, uh, who he says, preached the good news of peace, of shalom. And actually, while Peter's talking about Jesus, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, and Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And this leads us to our last point. The Jewish God has always been the God of all people. The Holy Spirit speaks that truth through Peter and then demonstrates that truth by coming and living inside these Gentiles for good. And Peter rightly says, I can't withhold water from those the Holy Spirit has already baptized with, their, with his presence. 
And then to finish the story, they, they go back to the Jewish leadership uh, of, of, of the, the Jesus movement after this, tell them what happened. And then in verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then the Gentiles, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this was a surprise to them, but as we said before, it shouldn't have been. Um, the whole Old Testament, Old Testament is pointing towards this. And as we'll see in Acts, the gospel spreads to the Gentile Cornelius and then to tons of other Gentiles and then to the ends of the ancient world. And then after Acts, uh, it, it uh, expands all the way to Hope Chapel, uh, to a continent they didn't even know existed, to the true ends of the earth. And that is how, this, is the, this story is the beginning of the movement from, from there to here to us. And I want to end on, on this note. Uh, God's impartiality that he doesn't accept our faces is both encouraging and terrifying at the same time. It's encouraging to the people that have the most ugly faces, uh, the roughest worldly appearances, the runts, the outcasts, the poor, the weak, the disabled. Those people ought to be encouraged in a God who does not accept their face but only sees their heart. You might fit that category today. Maybe uh, you're a sibling that's been constantly overshadowed by another sibling your whole life. Maybe you aren't as popular uh, because of your awkwardness or because of your looks. Maybe you're ashamed of a menial job that you have. If that's you, this act story is for you. Your heart alone is what matters to God. God sees the memorials to him rising up from your life. He has kept your tears in a jar. Take heart. He does not see as man sees because man is an idiot. (laughs) We don't see good. God sees better than us. It's encouraging to some people, but it's also terrifying to others. Many of us experience daily acceptance from people because of a job you hold. Uh, I'm a pastor. I get accepted a lot because I'm a pastor here in the South. Um, also, you can get not accepted uh, for being a pastor, too, same, same way. Uh, but maybe you also experience acceptance from the amount of money you have, uh, your charming personality, your good looks, even your outward show of church attendance, volunteering, public devotion to God. Here's the terrifying thing. People around you are affected by those things, but Peter is saying God is not affected by any of that. He is only looking at your heart, and it is only those who truly fear him and do what is right that are acceptable to him. This is a call for us to focus on our lives, on what matters, on our integrity, and working on the inside far more than we're working on the outside. Filling your life with memorial offerings that are seen only by God, that no one else sees. That is what God accepts. He shows no partiality. So rejoice and tremble. So to what extent is Christianity Jewish? The Gentiles is not as far from the Jewish God as you might have thought. The Jews are not as always in line with the Jewish God as you might have thought. And the Jewish God being the true God is and has always been the God of all people. Amen. Now, uh, even Cornelius in his humility and genuine faith and generosity could not have gotten to God all by himself. For us, no matter how many memorial offerings that you send up in your life, um, apart from Jesus, your sin will still weigh far heavier. Um, Notice in our story that Cornelius uh, receives the Spirit 
right after he hears the good news about Jesus and believes in Jesus. Because in that moment, he's tapping into, through his faith, the forgiveness of sin Jesus purchased and the righteousness Jesus earned on his behalf through his life and death. And so if you want acceptance by God, it begins by going to Jesus for that forgiveness and for righteousness. And one way to go to him is this table here where his broken body and his shed blood is laid out before us. And if you want to also work on your inner life, if you're leaving the sermon saying, I need to work on my inner life with God, it's actually uniting your heart to Jesus that gives us far more spiritual power to actually become inwardly acceptable to God, to live a life that remotely looks acceptable to God. And so God accepts us through Christ, but then also enables us to become acceptable in reality. So let's stand and prepare our hearts to come to his table by reading our liturgy together.